an imperfect person and to use that imperfect person to continue to carry out his purposes. And if you'll recall, Saul was kind of the unlikely guy. Remember, Saul was out looking for donkeys, uh, and he was going and chasing around, looking to, to find out kind of, hey, where are these animals at? And all of a sudden, he's appointed as king, right? This unlikely guy. I was out looking for my animals, and now I'm king, right? Most of us have never had that experience before. Uh, I would venture to say that probably all of us have never had that, exp- that, 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 that experience. But the truth is, is that a lot of us have had experiences where when we thought we were going out with one purpose, God had an entirely different purpose for us. That what started out as one direction, God then turned us in a different direction for his purpose. Well, this morning, what we're going to be seeing is really truly the work of the Holy Spirit. Because it is in the Holy Spirit and through his work that this this young man who is out searching for his father's animals, who then goes away and hides among the baggage so that he's not found, he doesn't even really want to be king, how God takes that man and through his spirit affirms him as the leader that will lead his people into victory. More importantly, what we'll see is that God's spirit affirms the perfect Messiah in Jesus Christ. And it's through his spirit that we can know and understand and recognize his one true king. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 15. Let's stand as we read that together this morning. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll go all the way through verse 15. And this is what it says. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we might send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, show shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, 
Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day for Today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, and we thank you for your spirit. Your spirit who makes known your king to us. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to your truth. And it is through your spirit that we have understanding. Father, this morning, as we are reminded of the work that your spirit does and is doing Lord, may our hearts rejoice. Father, may we put aside the concerns or the burdens or worries that are on our heart and may you speak to us and stir us. Lord God, may we be a people empowered by your spirit. May we be a people who are trusting and resting in the work of your spirit. And Father, may we be a people who are submitted to you. Lord God, if there are questions and doubts in our hearts this morning, may you resolve those through your word as your spirit reveals and illumines it to us this morning. Thank you for the work of your spirit, and we ask that your spirit would come mightily this morning, and we ask this in your name, amen. The Holy Spirit affirms God's king, empowering us to experience his saving work and the joy of spiritual renewal. The Holy Spirit affirms God's king, empowering us to experience his saving work and the joy of spiritual renewal. The Holy Spirit affirms God's king. Now, in verses 1 through 3, it says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Now, Nahash is unique. Nahash was the ruthless leader of the Ammonites. The name literally means snake. And we have from the historical record the Dead Sea Scrolls, that came from Cave 4 and Qumran actually speak about Nahash. This is what it says. 
It says, now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites, both tribes of Israel, gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh Gilead. So Nahash had been going through the land of Israel, the Ammonites going through the land of Israel, taking out, attacking the different tribes of Israel. Now, Jabesh Gilead is in the land of the Benjamites or in the tribe of Benjamites. And one of the things that was important was that if he took their right eye, what he understood was is that in so doing, the right eye was the eye that was able to be seen around the shield of a warrior. The left eye was protected by the shield. The right eye was the side that warriors used to fight with. So by taking out the right eye, it meant that no longer could they fight back. Not only that, it made them basically to the point where they had no power. They became impotent as an army. As a people, they had no way, in essence, to defend themselves. And the purpose was to bring disgrace upon Israel. The whole purpose of this attack was to bring disgrace upon Israel. Now, it's interesting. We can actually see a similarity between Nahash, who is the enemy of Israel, and Satan, right? Dave Guzik points out this. He says, Satan attacks us but cannot do anything against us without our agreement. He asks for and requires our submission. Now notice the very first thing that the men of Jabesh Gilead do is rather than run to the Lord, rather than run to their king, they immediately seek to make a treaty with Nahash. They have no idea what this treaty is going to entail. And what we can see in that moment really is a reflection of what happens if we try to make a treaty with sin. That sin and sin's sole purpose is to bring disgrace in our life, but more than that is to disgrace the name of God. And in so doing, disgracing the name of God, bringing defeat upon the people of God. And so, Nahash comes in with a treaty and an agreement that says, listen, oh, I'll make a treaty with you, but it's going to cost you your right eye. And it's going to cost you the glory of the name of your God. Satan wants us to serve him and will attempt us to intimidate us into giving in to him. That was Nahash's purpose. He knew that the men of Jabesh Gilead had come to him for a treaty because they did not feel like they could experience victory. Ever had that time in your life where you go, you know what, maybe it's just better to give in to this sin. Maybe it's not worth fighting 
Eh, it's going to be a losing battle anyway. Why not agree? Satan wants to humiliate us and exalt himself over us. And through humiliating one saint, Satan wants to bring reproach on God's people. Satan wants to take away our ability to effectively fight against him. And Satan wants to blind us. And if he can't blind us completely, he wants to blind us partially. One commentator put it this way. He said, instead of humbling themselves before God and confessing the sins that had brought them into trouble, they put God altogether aside and basely offered to become the servants of Ammonites, their greatest enemy. We see here the sad effect of sin and careless living and lowering men's spirits, sapping courage and discouraging noble effort. Oh, it's pitiable to see men tamely submitting to a vile master. Yet how often is the sight repeated? How often do men virtually say to the devil, make a covenant with us and we will serve thee? That's what's going on in this picture with Nahash. Nahash is looking to intimidate the Israelites, bring disgrace upon the name of God, and cause them to experience total defeat. Well, notice what happens. The men of Jabesh go, maybe we ought to rethink this treaty. Give us seven days. Give us seven days. Now, that seems kind of interesting, doesn't it? Hey, 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 just give us seven days. There's not much hope in this, but give us something that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. These were a people that were hopeless. Now, check the other part about this. Nahash says, go for it. You're going to find no one. The arrogance, right? The arrogance of, of Nahash and the Ammonites to say, these guys are going to find no one. Yeah, take your seven days. You're still going to serve us. Isn't that sin at work, right? Hey, you can try that. You can submit to God, but it isn't going to work. It's not going to happen. Listen, your sin is so different than everybody else's sin, there's no victory in it. That's what sin, that's what Satan would love for us to buy. But the great part about this is the people of Israel, they weep. They weep because they know that in their hearts, defeat is imminent. And yet they haven't turned to the Lord. They haven't turned to the king that God has given them that they demanded because there is no confidence in the king. They stand in doubt. And notice what it says. It says, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. Now here's the newly appointed king. He doesn't have a palace. He has no place to live. He's still serving in the field with his oxen. And look what happens. It says, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. 
Now, we saw before that the Spirit of God had rushed upon Saul in chapter 10. And Saul prophesied. But notice that even after Saul had prophesied and experienced the power of the Spirit, he still went and hid when he was appointed as king. Once again, the Spirit rushes upon Saul. And this time, something dramatic happens. This time, what occurs is a righteous anger comes over Saul. It says here that his anger was greatly kindled. Now, there's two reasons for probably why this anger was kindled. The first is that there is an enemy that's coming to disgrace the name of God. The second is that God's people have not turned towards God. God's people are living as a hopeless people, a defeated people, rather than in the victory that God is desiring to bring into their lives. And so there's this righteous anger that comes over Saul. It's a wonderful reminder that God calls us to be angry about the things that anger him. So often, we live in a culture, a Christian culture, that loves nothing more for us to to put down our anger, to push it aside, to say that we should never be angry. The truth is, is God desires us to be angry about the things that he's angry about. Not to sin in that anger, but to be moved and motivated by that anger. An anger which demands righteousness, which demands a righteous response. Well, now Saul is within this kingdom and God is going to bring forth this king. He's going to empower this king. And what we see here is that God is actually going to give us a glimpse not only of this moment in time where he redeems his people through this king, but he's going to give us a picture of how he's going to redeem his people eternally through his one true king, through his one true Messiah. And so what we see here, in essence, are four ways in which the Holy Spirit affirms God's king. See, the people have no reason to believe that Saul is going to move in power, that he's going to lead them into victory. This is a man who worked in the fields of his father. He happens to be taller than everybody else and good-looking, but by everybody's account, seems to be somewhat cowardly. He's hid himself among the baggage. He had to be dragged from that hiding place, brought before the people. The people hail him as king, And rather than going and establishing his government, he goes back to the field and works in his field because it's what he knows. And this is going to be the one that leads us. All along, God is showing us that he's still the true king, that he is still the one who is at work. Even though the people have asked for a king, he's going to give them exactly what they've asked for, and yet it is going to be in his spirit and through his spirit that his work is accomplished. And so the first way in which we see the Holy Spirit affirm God's king is through the authority of his word. The authority of his word. 
Verse 7 through 8 says, He, this is Saul, took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Now Samuel, the first Samuel 10 this Saul has gone from being a man who has hidden himself amongst the baggage to now speaking with authority. But not only is he speaking with authority, he is actually pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel. See, this authority all of a sudden changes. The only way that the people begin to follow Saul is because the Spirit is affirming the authority of his word. You see, in Judges 19 through 21, we're actually told of a story where an Ephraim concubine is brought into the town of Gibeah, and she is brutally raped and murdered by the men of Gibeah. The men refused to repent, and her master, an Ephraimite, goes and he does something that seems quite drastic. After she dies, he cuts her into pieces, and he sends her to the other tribes of Israel and says, we need to get these guys. We need to deal with their utter perversion and defilement. God calls upon the destruction of these men. What's interesting about that is that we know from Judges 21 that the only people, the only town that did not respond to the call to go up against the city of Gibeah was the city of Jabesh-Gilead. In fact, we're told in Judges 21, that what ends up happening is that the men of Jabesh-Gilead are judged. And this is what it says. It says in Judges 21, verse 8, it says, And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mitzpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a man you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with them. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time and they gave the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. What had come upon the people who failed to respond? Death. But there was this interesting, unique relationship between Gilead, Jabesh Gilead, Jabesh Gilead, and Gibeah. 
And that relationship was, was that Gilead Jabesh was, or Jabesh Gilead was, was constantly protecting Gibeah. And Gibeah was protecting Jabesh Gilead. And following the judgment of those men who would not come out and fight for righteousness, the remaining women who survived were actually brought to the city of Gibeah. And they married in the city of Gibeah. And so you can see why there was this weeping in Gibeah for Jabesh Gilead. There was this unique connection that was there. And when Saul spoke these words, the men of Gibeah knew exactly what he meant. Listen, I'm sending to you split up pieces of this oxen, which Deuteronomy 28 tells us is the curse of God. And one of the things that's happening in this passage is they are understanding from Saul this man who seemingly was unfit for king, that God was using him to pronounce judgment upon them. Now, what's awesome about that is this. It says the men responded. It says he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, whoever does not come to be, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. That word dread in Hebrew is the word, the terror of God. They all of a sudden got real clear, here's what's being said. How? Because the Spirit was affirming that Saul was king. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16 actually tells us that it is by the Spirit that we know the mysteries of God. That God's word is illumined and revealed to us. John 3, 5 through 8. And I want to encourage you to write this passage down. It says this. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Saul is an imperfect person who is being led by the Spirit. And God is affirming that Saul is his chosen king in this moment. But it is through the Spirit that Jesus Christ, who is the one true King, is affirmed through the power of the Word. It is the Spirit who is affirming in our hearts that Jesus is the one true King. We didn't come to an understanding of who Jesus was because there was some great argument that occurred in our life. It's because the Spirit opened our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is and affirmed the word. 1 John 2, 19 through 27 adds, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have, all have knowledge. I write you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is in the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 
This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. It is through the Spirit that we have understanding. It is through the Spirit that the authority of the Word is made known and is understood within our heart. See, the Spirit is the one who affirms the King. You ever struggle with doubt about Jesus? One of the things that often happens in the struggle with doubt is that people begin to pull away from the Lord. See, when we doubt who Jesus is, God's desire is that we move towards him, not away from him. Why? Because it's not about us going and finding ourselves someplace else. It's not about spending more time just trying to understand it in the flesh. It's allowing the Spirit to do greater work within our life and seeking Him. Letting the Spirit bring understanding. Letting the Spirit shape our heart. Letting the Spirit affirm the authority of His Word in our life. What was the greatest confusion for the Gentiles and for the Jews as they watched Jesus? It was that he spoke with the authority that no one else could understand. He spoke with authority that no rabbis had, but that the heart of man knew was true because the Spirit of God was at work. The Spirit was the one affirming the authority of his word. The second way that the Spirit affirms his king is through the promise of salvation. The promise of salvation. Verse 9, it says, And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Now think about this for a moment. The men of Jabesh, Gilead, were in such despair that they had gone out and said, give us seven days. And if we don't find somebody in seven days, we'll submit ourselves to you. We will serve you. Now for most of us, that doesn't sound like a very confident position. For Saul... Saul was the man who had just been serving with the oxen. He's still coming from the field. In fact, the the Jabez Gileadites probably didn't even know yet that Saul had been affirmed as king. They probably hadn't even been told. And yet... What's at work here is that Saul is being affirmed through the authority of his word, but then he shares that tomorrow you're going to have salvation. But it's not going to be salvation by the end of the day. It's going to be by noon. 
And you can imagine, for most of us, if we were standing before that, we'd be like, you're out of your mind. Did you see these guys? This guy's called the snake for a reason, right? This guy's here to destroy us. He wants our right eye. Have you seen the other tribes? Nobody's been able to defeat this one. And the men of Jabez Gilead are miles away and the messengers come to him and say, hey, listen, tomorrow you're gonna have salvation before noon. And they're glad. How does that happen? They're glad. They have no reason to believe Saul except for the fact that the Holy Spirit is affirming his work. The only reason that they can be glad in that situation is because God is is working in power through his king. His spirit is affirming, guess what? I'm gonna promise you salvation. And the men of Jabesh Gilead go, yeah. See, a fleshly reaction would be, you're wrong. Tomorrow seems a bit early, I like it. I don't know about you guys, but me, my rational side would be, "Mm, who's this guy, right? The rational side of us, our fleshly side says not a chance, and yet the Spirit of God is working in power, affirming that Saul is king through the promise of salvation. And what's crazy is nobody doubts it. Nobody doubts it. Why? Because the Spirit is the one transforming the heart. And the Spirit is the one that is leading the way. And the Spirit is the one saying, this is my King. Believe Him. And what does it produce in them? It produces this same word we'll see later in Hebrew is the same word as greatly rejoiced in Hebrew the word samach. And it literally means greatly rejoiced. It's the same response that the entire nation of Israel will have when they go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. How could they greatly rejoice? They could greatly rejoice because God has affirmed through his spirit his king. Well, here's what's greater news for us. Through Jesus, Through Christ's one true king, Jesus is affirmed through the promise of salvation by his spirit. How can we know that Christ is real? We know Christ can be real when God has sealed within us through his spirit. His salvation is at work. See, Ephesians says this. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's something that happens when we confess and believe on Jesus, when we repent and believe on Jesus. There's a confidence that comes over us, that comes via 
the Holy Spirit sealing us as a guarantee, saying, yes, you are mine. It affirms, the Spirit affirms that Jesus is the one true Messiah, that salvation only comes through Christ. That's a gift that he's given. See, the Israelites only had the promise of a victory because they had an imperfect king by which the spirit was moving and working. But the true Messiah that Jesus, that God was bringing in Jesus, we, not long, we no longer have a temporary victory, but we have an eternal victory. And that promise of salvation that's affirmed through the work of the spirit gives us confidence as followers of Christ. And it means even when we face battles that are insurmountable, we can have joy. Because the Spirit has affirmed that I am Christ and He is the author of our salvation. I am in Christ and He is the author of salvation. The third way the Spirit affirms his king is victory through submission to the king. Victory through submission to the king. Verse 10 and 11, it says, and the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Now Saul broke them down into three companies. They had to follow his leadership and his leadership proved to be victorious. In Christ, when we submit to him, when we surrender to the true king, Jesus Christ, the spirit affirms his work by bringing victory in our life. Romans 8 says this, and I want to share two passages from this, from Romans, because I think they speak directly to what we're talking about. And this is what it says. It says this, it says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's that promise of salvation again. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Who is the one doing the work within us? It is the Spirit. And when we see God change our hearts, when we see him working and sanctifying us and making us more like Christ, it actually affirms that Christ is the king. More importantly, we see that the victory is not in and of ourselves, but it is in and through Christ as we submit to him. I think as Christians, a lot of times, we think the victory of God comes by us working harder. 
The victory of God comes when we submit to him. And as we submit to him, then he changes and renews our hearts. He grants us victory. In my life, one of the the, the great areas that God has worked on has been in that area where God took a man who was pretty selfish and pretty unloving and gave me a love for people in a way that could not be explained. I can look at my life 20 years ago and think back and say, Did you really love people? And I've watched how God has shaped in my life, not through trying harder, but by submitting to him and him working in my heart. Christ is the one who leads in front as the spirit begins to shape and twist us. In my heart, I was a very defiled man. I was a young man who, who wrestled with lust and, and it just, it stirred within. And yet God took that heart and God transformed that heart. Not because I tried harder. Because the truth is, when I was trying harder, things got a lot worse. But when I submitted to him and I rested in him and I sought him, God began renewing and transforming. Romans 15 tells us this. It says this, it says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Who is the one that God has appointed to change our lives? It is through the Spirit. And as we submit to the king, we begin to experience victory. I want to say this one thing. Some of you may be experiencing, as we all have, a desire to have freedom from a specific sin that may be at work within your life. I think sometimes we lose sight of what God has said to us. He didn't say the battle was going to be short. He spoke of our walk with God as a marathon. And there are days I think that we can get into a place where we just give up and go, that's nonsense. It will never happen. I'll never be victorious. And what we're doing is we are allowing the Nahash of the Ammonites to speak in our ear that's saying, listen, just make a treaty with me because there's no way that you're ever going to have victory. But God's voice through the work of his spirit is saying, listen, submit to me. 
I've promised you salvation and I will give you victory. Submit to me. Submit. And we can have joy in knowing that that journey may be short and it may be long, but in both ways, God is at work affirming the truth that Christ is the true Messiah. Finally, what we see here is that not only do we see the Holy Spirit affirm the authority of the word, not only do we see the Holy Spirit affirm his king through the promise of salvation and through the victory through submission to the king, but we see him affirm his king through grace towards those who oppose him. Grace towards those who oppose him. Now Saul had these men who had doubted him. In fact, we're told at the end of 1 Samuel 10 that there were worthless men. It says here in verse 27, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Now these worthless men who were motivated by not right reasons actually had the real question. They understood that there was no man that could save them. And so, once Saul comes forward in this victory, the people look at Saul and say, hey, listen, who was it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But notice Saul's response. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Now Saul will forget this later on. But right now, he understands that the victory is not his, that the victory is the Lord's. And he looks and he says, listen, we're not gonna kill those men who oppose me, but we're gonna show them grace. The truth is, in our own lives, our flesh desires justice. And yet it is through Christ and his work, through the spirit at work within us, that we are able to love others in spite of the way that they treat us. Romans 5.8 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God was giving a picture about how he was going to reveal his king, showing us that even our receiving of his king, even our understanding of his king was a work of his spirit and not a work of men. Saul demonstrates this for a moment. But we have a true king in Jesus, the one true Messiah, that when he went to the cross, had laid down or had pushed aside, did not pull on his deity, and was living by the power of the Spirit. And as he was on the cross near the two other criminals that were on the cross next to him, 
as he was being mocked and told to come off the cross. He didn't look back and strike them dead. He didn't look left and right and say, you're wrong, you're all just worthless pieces of garbage. What he said was simply, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Through the power of the Spirit, Jesus proclaims, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was the Spirit affirming that this is the Messiah. And if you remember, there were those who heard the sent. Him say that, and they turned around and simply said, this is surely the Son of God. Because it's not possible in the flesh. See, the Holy Spirit is affirming to us that Jesus is the King. Yes, he did it with Saul. But more importantly, Through Jesus Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit so that we might live lives confidently with the Spirit within us bearing testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And that allows us to walk in freedom knowing that Jesus is confidently who he said, that his word is true, that his salvation is real, that his victory is near. And that this love for us, even in spite of our disobedience, is eternal. Even when the voice of the enemy is saying, it's not enough. And notice the response. The response here is the response that we all can have. It says in verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Notice what they do. They go forward and they formally present Saul as king. They offer sacrifices before the Lord. In essence, they worship him. And then it says, Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. You see, knowing that the Holy Spirit has affirmed God's king frees us to joyfully trust in his saving work for our lives and experience spiritual renewal. Knowing the Holy Spirit is a firm God's king frees us to joyfully trust in his saving work for our lives and experience his spiritual renewal. See, Gilgal was the first place the people camped after being led into Canaan. Gilgal was also the place where they set up the 12 stones by the dry bed of the Jordan River as a testimony to what the Lord had done for them. And Gilgal was also the tabernacle site during the early conquest of the land. They were brought back to that place to remind them of who it was that was giving them victory and salvation. You see, in our lives, we need to be reminded that it is the Spirit 
that is at work affirming these things in our lives. And when he is affirming these things in our lives, we can joyfully trust him, knowing that it's not up to us, but it is completely up to him. And we can have joy knowing that it is God that has revealed his truth to us so that we can understand, so that we can know the true Savior. For many of us, we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that our salvation is not a work of ourselves, but it is a work of God. And that same work that he uses to save, the same spirit that gives us understanding is the same spirit that is working out his righteousness in our life. And we need to be a people who not only know that the Spirit is the revealer, but we need to be a people who need to remember that it is by His power that we live and fulfill His purposes, not by our own. We can never fulfill the will of God apart from God. It is only through the power and work of His Spirit. F.B. Meyer puts it this way. He says, Jesus is our King. The Father hath anointed Him and set Him on His holy hill. And we have gladly assented to the appointment and made Him King. But sometimes our sense of loyalty and devotion wanes. Insensibly, we drift from our strenuous endeavor to act always as his devoted subjects. Therefore, we need from time to time to renew the kingdom and reverently make him king before the Lord. There is a sense in which we can consecrate ourselves only once, but we can renew our vows often. May that be our prayer this morning that we are reminded that it is the Spirit who has revealed the Messiah to us and it is only by His power that we experience salvation and victory. And may that cause us to live joyful lives even in the midst of what seems like overwhelming defeat, knowing that He is the source of our victory. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to take communion together. Lord God, we come before you, and we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for your king that you have given, and that your spirit has affirmed your king, Jesus. Thank you that he is the one doing the work within our life. Father, as we prepare for communion this morning, May we take the truths that we've just heard about Jesus as the affirmed king. And Father, may we sit humbly in your presence, rejoicing together that you didn't simply die, but that you rose again. And that you have promised to come again to not only return for your people, but to establish your perfect kingdom. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to understand through your spirit. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.